This is Dr. Betty Rabinowitz, NextGen Healthcare's Chief Medical Officer and Principal with NextGen Advisors. I'd like to welcome you to our podcast series featuring senior leaders from the NextGen Advisors team. I'd like to welcome back my colleagues, Dr. Marty Kostig and Graham Brown. Hello to both of you. Hi, Betty. Hey, Betty. Good morning. On September 2nd, we published a blog explaining some of the statistical concepts behind testing. Today, we're going to delve into more issues regarding testing for COVID-19 and its value for both the individual and, this, and to support public health and policy decisions. This past weekend, the New York Times published an article explaining how current reporting of PCR test results using up to 40 cycles before adjudicating a test is negative. Since every cycle doubles the number of DNA strands, 40 cycles would get you to over 1 trillion. That might actually pick up fragments of viral DNA that are of no clinical significance. Graham, what did you see as the implications of this decision to set the positivity at such a high level of uh, cycles? I think the immediate implication that comes to mind is the number of false positive results that will occur as a result of this really kind of low threshold, as it were, for the amount of viral load that needs to be in place for a positive result to occur. And so the result of that is you're going to find many individuals that may have minimal levels of infection occurring and showing up as a positive result. Those individuals then are put into isolation. They're being responded to as potentially infectious when indeed they may not be. And so the public health implication in some ways is, is really to confuse the matter. We're identifying folks who may not be at risk of spreading the disease. They're undertaking interventions that may not be necessary and appropriate. And we're not really targeting the folks that uh, might have a higher viral load and might be indeed the ones, the super spreaders that we need to be worrying most about. I agree with what you're saying, Graham. I think to me, there were kind of two striking things about this. One is given the limited public health resources that we have to do tracking, trace and contact tracing, that a test that is not discriminating as to those who are most at risk for spreading the illness versus those who may have little or no risk is actually wasting precious resources that would be much more effective if they were focused on the highest risk part of the population. And that's tied to the other big takeaway for me, which is that the, the PCR test is really a quantitative test where the number of cycles it takes before it turns positive gives you an indication of the viral load of the patient. And so uh, not using that information, whether you set the bar at 40 or 35 or 30, seems to me the bigger issue is why not use the information, that quantitative information to prioritize your intervention strategy? So the question in my mind, Marty, in that context is do we have a good correlation between viral load and clinical uh, significance. Because in the absence of that, I can understand why a uh, arbitrary bar was set uh, anywhere. We can talk in a moment why it was set at 40, but 
not knowing a lot about this particular virus because it was novel, I wonder if there's just not good correlation between the, the threshold at which it becomes significant. Yeah, I think it's an important question. It, it, the virologists that were interviewed in the New York Times article seemed to indicate that they thought that um, viral load was an indicator of infectivity, but I haven't actually seen any data on that. So it, it, it feels like the, the test was made too sensitive. Why do you think it's being done this way? So I'll start. I, I think that my, my sense of this is, is that, you know, back in January and February and March, when they were creating these tests, there was so little that was understood about the virus. And it was clearly had a significant fatality rate. And some of the fatality statistics that were coming out early on were way up in the five to 10% range. Given a disease that's that dangerous, it's only natural that you design a test to be maximally sensitive because you don't want to miss diagnosing someone who's got a disease that serious. So I'm, I, I suspect that that was really the logic that drove the initial decisions to set a really high bar of 40 cycles before you would say, if it hasn't shown up by 40, then we're going to say they're negative. That said, we've learned a lot in the last six months. And I think what I took away from the New York Times article is it's really time to relook at this and rethink what is the best place to put that number of cycles and is the quantitative component actually going to be helpful as well. I think Marty raises a really good point in terms of the lack of information at the outset when testing was broadly being developed and brought to the market. The interesting thing from my perspective around this is the development of new testing methodologies by a variety of different companies actually developing the diagnostics and then the laboratories that are processing the specimens and, and producing the results are being done, you know, across the U.S. in a very in a variable way. And so we're seeing as a result kind of a lack of standardization. I think to Marty's point, we've got enough information now to probably revisit the testing methodology and the thresholds that are put in place to be a little more accurate in terms of what particular levels do we want to identify for, understand the importance or the relative significance of viral load and how that translates to whether people are particularly infectious or also particularly may have a better sense of immunity in recovering from their disease. I think those are important factors for us to be thinking about as we kind of revisit testing as a broader strategy of public health intervention and uh, bring it more in line with what we're learning about uh, coronavirus at this time. I'd like us to uh, talk a little bit more about getting quantitative results from uh, the test. You spoke a little bit about it uh, a moment ago, but what are some of the challenges and opportunities when you compare a test that gives a positive negative or a test that has a, a spectrum of positivity, negativity based on a quantitative result? Marty? Yes, the first thing that I would think of is from the patient's point of view, as soon as you move away from a test that's either positive or negative, it gets confusing to to individual patients. 
what do you mean I'm a three on a scale of one to five? Do I have it or don't I have it, Doc? So I think, you know, I, from, a, from just from a communication and understanding for the public at large, as soon as you move to the quantitative, you've got that challenge to overcome. There's a big educational component. On the other hand, the opportunity to, to target your public health interventions as we're trying to open schools and resume different economic activities to have the best possible information on the risk to the community of people spreading disease, that it seems to me the quantitative results, assuming we get more insight into how they relate to the level of contagion, there's a huge value there. Going back to the public health value of testing, the use of uh, wastewater epidemiology at the University of Arizona has been in the news uh, of late. It appears that they were able to use water samples from the drainage pipes of individual dormitories to detect an outbreak before it spread. Marty, can you tell us a little bit more about this? And do, do you feel this is a scalable solution or kind of proposition? Yeah, so this was this is a, a fascinating example of the you know, the level of creativity that can be brought to solve a, a challenging problem. So at the university, they happen to have a microbiology lab where they can um, do the analysis of finding viral DNA in the wastewater, and so they have been taking regular samples from each of the dormitories. They found on a Tuesday afternoon that one of the samples turned positive. They, they also had a plan in place with a task force and a testing capability so that by the next morning, they reconfirmed that that dorm was positive. They tested every student in the dorm that same day. They were able to identify the two students who were infected, put them in quarantine, and by the following day, the wastewater in that dormitory was completely clear of virus. Um, so they had all the infrastructure in place to be able to rapidly intervene. And the exciting thing about it to me was, based on the science of this wastewater, is that they can do very early detection of virus shedding up to a week before people actually have any symptoms of infection. So it's a very early indicator of, of disease, and it allows them to make these sort of health, inter, public health type interventions before the, the disease spreads. Um, there's some promise, I think, of scaling it, particularly to academic institutions where they have the infrastructure to do the testing and stuff. It sounded from the description like it's fairly low tech. There have been reports about these robotically obtained samples. At, at, at the university, they're sending people down a manhole with a little vial and they're getting a sample of wastewater. I mean, it, 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 that part is pretty simple. So I, I really think the limiting factor will be the ability to do the, actually run the tests and then to have the infrastructure in place to respond effectively to the information as you do them. Ren? You know, I thought this was a particularly fascinating way to come about looking at those environments, particularly as we're thinking about folks going back to school and these large conglomerations where 
you're trying to test rapidly a large cohort of individuals on a regular basis and the practical and logistical implications as well as the cost of doing that are really high. So developing new methods to come at this in a more population-based way, like sampling wastewater, I think is a really clever, smart, and potentially efficacious way to come at uh, a broader approach to testing, particularly as a first step, where you can then potentially identify where there might be an outbreak, as, as Marty was saying, you know, perhaps long in advance of people showing symptoms, and really act upon that. So the response infrastructure uh, would also then be kind of a key to this being a scalable solution. The other big advantage of it is, is the individuals who are healthy and not having symptoms wouldn't have to go through any testing process. It's much more efficient and it doesn't put people through the hassle of having to stand in line or whatever to get tested themselves. Hmm. Absolutely. As we try to sift through all of the controversies about testing that are kind of playing out in the media, what do you see as the most important practical themes for people to take away from all of this? Ren? In some ways, it, this actually is a difficult question to answer because testing, A, has become a, a political issue in some areas, but more the it's really, it can be quite a complex and confusing area for folks that don't have a deep understanding of specificity and sensitivity. Don't really, you know, they're used to, as Marty was saying, it's either a black or a white result. What do you mean I'm a three out of five? What does that mean? That interpretation um, is difficult to do. So I think the, the opportunities or the takeaways are to revisit how testing is done, looking, as we were saying at the outset, at um, how sensitive a test is, then also considering who are the appropriate individuals to be testing and can we bring about a cheap inexpensive solution of tests that can be done on a rapid basis so that folks can be you know if they are showing some kind of symptoms if they're showing that they've had exposure if they've been in the wrong environment at the wrong time with the wrong folks and they're at risk that we can test them and then maybe test them 12 hours later, 24 hours later, to really catch them on the uptake uh, before they become spreaders themselves and before they're even showing symptoms. Yeah, so I actually think there are, there are a couple big takeaways from this. One is, is that it, thinking about it at the public health level in terms of keeping our communities safe and enabling normal activity to resume at some level, that, that more testing is better. You, in some ways, you can't have too much testing, but we also have to be thoughtful about how we interpret the tests at the public health level. And it really requires the, expert, the scientific expertise to interpret results and to make sure that we're making appropriate policy decisions based on the results we're getting. At the individual level, I think people should it is complicated enough that people should be consulting their uh, physician uh, about getting testing to understand their personal risk, which is really the most important factor in driving. It really matters less which test you get than, than having a physician or a clinician working with you who understands both the test and your risk who can help you interpret the results. The good news is, is that at the end of the day, get a test and it's positive and you feel like, oh, I don't really believe that. If you get a repeat test, 
and it's still positive, then it's highly likely that you have the disease. And if you get a repeat test and it's negative and you don't have any symptoms, then it's highly likely that you don't, that you're not infected. So it's fairly easy to get to the right answer fairly quickly once you enter into the testing phase. Uh, thank you, Marty and Graham, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. I'd like to uh, remind you that if you've enjoyed today's topic, uh, consider subscribing to our podcast. This is Dr. Betty Rubinowitz with NextGen Healthcare. Have a great day.